Hello, all you beautiful people out there. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a show. This week, yet again, we're covering the biggest phenomena that has emerged. This week, we're doing Bridgerton. It has surpassed everything. Uh, I'm reading, and this might be outdated even as now, and a viewership of 82 million households. It is the most watched series on Netflix. This month it was renewed for a second season. Absolutely catching on like wildfire. I had never heard of the series until this past week. If you've listened to our last episode, I was getting married on the day of my, my wedding. Our photographer started talking about it. And <laughs> and through the weekend, I started hearing more about it. And re- we started, oh my gosh, yeah. And it kind of had been on our back list for episodes. It came out on Christmas. And it follows a precedent of similar things that maybe we had discussed before because it is the the Regency era, the romance, the Jane Austen stuff. And so we thought, oh, maybe we'd... Right. Done. And like we, we touched on things like uh, Emma and then we compared that with Clueless. Go back and listen. I love that episode. Uh, similar in ways to Little Women. So this is some some subject matter we've been circling around. And this one was really interesting to me because I was looking for the the hook. I was looking for what set this apart from all the other things that look similar to this or like Downton Abbey. You know, like there's a there's mm-hmm. this is a whole genre. Even the crown we covered. Romances. Yeah. There's something going on here for it to have a viewership of 82 million households. I'm really excited to learn more about the author, the backstory behind this, where this came from, because I swear I've never heard of this before. Mm-hmm. Taylor, please enlighten me. <laughs> it is huge, like you said. So the 82 million households is more than 40% of the platform Netflix's subscribers oh, yeah. gave it a shot, which is probably you if you're listening to this, because yeah. that's a pretty big number. The premise being Regency reimagined, so we'll talk about Regency and romance and all that stuff, but this is designed to be more lavish, sexier is the big thing. Like, that's, mm. the, that's the scuttlebutt of it, and funnier, mm. perhaps, than the standard period drama. And then the other big thing is the colorblind casting, or just, if you don't want to use that terminology, just a more diverse cast, yeah. and also heavily being focused on the lives of women, which, if you know the creator, Shonda Rhimes... We'll talk about her. That's her jam. So where this comes from, it's based on the book series by Julia Quinn of romance novels, which is a very lucrative fandom that's pretty dismissed when it comes to turning something into Like we have a whole episode on Hallmark movies. Right, right. But that's really all you think about with, and th- this might be the core of a trend that changes where like the rise of superhero storytelling where they invited comic book fans off in the shadows to come validate the material. This is embracing mostly female readers who feel like they have to hide these romance titles behind more traditional acceptable To compare it books. to another thing, um, this is bringing up, Netflix is definitely going down this road of, of, of trying to get some of these properties exactly like what you're talking about. There's another one that is definitely flying a bit under the radar, but it is growing an audience and has gotten renewed for, I think it's third season now. Uh, It's called Virgin River. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, The series is written by Robin Carr. I only know this because my mom (laughs) loves these books uh, all through through my high school. I I bought her a bunch just for like holidays and stuff like that. And so now, lo and behold, it's turned into this massive series. uh, and, And my mom is like eating it up. So I'm really happy for her but I, and that was kind of my first taste through last year through the pandemic and everything she was getting into and like oh my gosh they they got that property and they're turning this into a series and it's getting renewed and it's re- getting renewed again uh yeah. so 
it's really interesting to me that in the way that Netflix is positioning itself here with these different audiences, because I, I mean, I, this this Regency romance stuff is so fertile. It's so smart. Mm-hmm. And I really would love to see, like you're saying, an, a wave of romance series just to see what we get out of it. Well, and it's also <laughs> so f- puzzling because, like I said, it is such an underserved adaptable material in spite of yeah. the fact that it's a the romance book industry is a billion dollar industry it made up 23% of all fiction books in 2016 and half of the trade paperbacks wow. that are sold but oh then God. film and tv seem surprised when it's like twilight gets big or outlander was recently released which is even more right so this is kind of like it's this not really black sheep because most People, specifically women, have read it and enjoy reading these types of stories. So the show, who created it? Created by Chris Van Dusen. Of Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, yeah. And so- That's his big claim to fame, which I was really shocked to see because looking at this, like just getting into the drama of it, getting inundated to the show, uh, coming back and and seeing that it was such a hardcore television, like like mainstream television, Grey's Anatomy. Uh, I didn't really, Mm. I didn't feel any of that influence on on the screen per se, but I also am not a big Grey's Anatomy aficionado. (laughs) So if I missed a bunch of that stuff and it's latent with all sorts of Grey's Anatomy's (laughs) feeling things, please let us know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, he was saying that the show is for a modern audience. He said, we weren't interested in being a history lesson or a documentary, something like The Crown yeah. that gets flagged yeah, yeah. for. But he's saying they're more exploring the intersection of history and fantasy. Interesting. So it, 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 it has some of the historical stuff, but they're like, don't slap us on the wrist for not doing what actually ha- – because that's not what we're trying to do, right. which I think is, is very well, It's important. very important to know that and to be able mm-hmm. to verbalize that. And it's like, well, this is, this is the goal. Uh, judge it against that, not you know just wildly against your you know implications <laughs> right. or what you know what you think is good in the genre maybe. But mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's merging a lot of things. And then, like I said, produced Shonda Rhimes, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal. She had speaking of Scandal, not the show, but her. She had yep. <laughs> a massive deal with Netflix recently in the past couple of years, and that was mm-hmm. the big scuttlebutt with her because she had worked for ABC for decades. Brought. I think maybe it was like 15 years, maybe not two decades, but 50, it's crazy. Brought over $2 billion with her shows. Oh, my gosh. But then they had this falling out because – and I won't get into the specifics of the story, <laughs> but essentially it started with – or it was the last straw, one or the other, of they wouldn't give her another pass to Disneyland because she wasn't able to go. But she she got one for her because she doesn't have a partner. So it was her and her nanny, and she has three adopted kids But she wasn't going to go, so she wanted another pass for her sister, and they wouldn't give it to her, and then they did, and then when they tried to use it, it didn't work, and then apparently some executive said, don't you have enough, or something like that, and Mm. she went to her lawyers and was like, give me a deal with Netflix very soon. Wow. And now she is currently the highest paid showrunner in television. Oh my gosh. Because she's so in demand, and she has all these shows already being made and, and developed for Netflix. Good um, Lord. Unstoppable. She's like, I, I need some <laughs> respect, my God. Yeah. So how she got it, and I saw this interview with Julia, because Julia Quinn, she was like, nobody's adapting romance novels. And they were like, well, how did you sell it to her? And she was like, well, basically, Shonda ran out of books to read on vacation. Uh-huh. And uh, she just sort of stumbled onto hers. You know, like I said, it's it's one of these trade wow. paperbacks. It's in the airport kind of romance section. Yeah. The big 
thing as far as the adapting it to television is the sex. And Julia says the show doesn't seem more explicit to her. And of course, I read the book and I can confirm if you know the genre, it's like any romance novel where it's uh, described in such a way. Ah, but <laughs> she said what, what, what maybe why people are making a big to do about it is because what the books do well in the genre and what the show does well is it's from a more female centric gaze, which makes it mm-hmm. feel sexy to women mm-hmm. and finally get to look at things the way we do and not right just from whoever else is in the writer's room or what sex looks like on TV traditionally. Right. Um, I, it didn't really strike me, I guess, because of the different platforms, but I have to remember it's still television, but in Netflix watching it, uh, one of the main character introductions, the older brother of mm-hmm. uh, the main character, uh, Daphne, <laughs> he is introduced yeah, yeah. having sex with his mistress <laughs> right. out in the middle of like the woods or the or the field. Also, like some horse boy has to like hold his back <laughs> to yeah. the horse while he hears it going on behind him. He's late to the big engagement. Of, maybe we should we should set up exactly what the plot is here because it, it gets a little thick. Well, I think the basics of it being it is it follows the classic kind of like fake dating romance story where there's a family and it's set in Regency England and there's a you know a whole group of people that need to get married off. There's, yeah, there's a whole to town, a township of well-to-do uh, families who are now their offspring are getting to that age where they they need to actually start preparing for the social season as, as it's called for arranging these marriages between the well-to-do offspring of all of the the more elite mm-hmm. class um so it and it focuses on one of the daughters as the main character who is really about to line up to be married off as her older brother's best friend who is not taking any of this really seriously is coming into town to visit his his family and he gets stuck there he becomes uh, mm-hmm. the, the faux uh, love interest, if you will. But this all culminates as uh, Daphne Bridgerton is being pursued by this older, disgusting gentleman <laughs> and uh, needs a way out. And 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 simultaneously, Simon Bessette needs a way out of all of the pressures because it's been said that he's never going to marry. He doesn't want to be involved in what's going on here. He wants to get in, get out. And so he's looking for a way to relieve that pressure off of him. So being with somebody like Bassett, the Duke of Hastings, actually might really improve her standing socially. Mm -hmm. Uh, Conversely, Bassett, now all the pressure gone. He's got a lady. Everything's going forth. So they form this pact that neither of them want to marry each other. But if if they pretend that they are into this, that it answers both of their problems. Uh, and that comes out by the end of the first episode. And I, and I was like, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, because the whole episode I was waiting for, what stands this apart? What really is the premise here that that people are so, so caught on? And when that happened, I was like, this is it. This is amazing. This is this, this is the, such a catalyst for the rest of this series. I, I know exactly what everything going on before us. Uh, I, I, was, I was locked and loaded, ready to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it, it does follow the paradigms set up by any romance story and then also the paradigms of Regency England, which we'll talk about what exactly all that is. But the, the whole show got Julia Quinn's stamp of approval. She said it shouldn't be a word-for-word adaptation. I never expected that, which is always as we talk about what you want from somebody yeah. when their thing is is getting turned into something else. She was a consultant, though. She was on the set, but I don't think she had any writing 
sway in it in the writer. She wasn't sitting in the writer's room kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but the, the, talking about what you're saying, that what what people gravitated to in the process of making it new, just some of the stylistic things. So the classical music covers of modern pop songs is a what some people I, hate it and some people love it. Um, you know, it's something that did not actually uh, occur to me until late in the first episode. I just caught a little melody in the background mm-hmm. of a scene. It's supposed to be diegetic music. It's supposed to be actual musicians there. But the uh, the tune of I, I did not actually recognize exactly what song it was, but I recognized that it was yeah. a modern song that had been transcribed and, and recontextualized into 1813. Which I at at the time I I thought it was just the perfect subtle thing that maybe maybe it strikes the right tone maybe it could be distracting if it's like your favorite song that when later on but, there's a yeah. there's a montage there's a very famous now montage of sexual dalliances oh. with Taylor Swift's song that oh got popular Lord. this year so so oh maybe Lord. some people yeah but they, I heard. Uh, a movie that I really love, Knight's Tale, that incorporated classic rock songs. That was kind of used as a reference mm, for this, yeah. uh, I read. Interesting, um, okay. But then in terms Very of good. the costumes, 7,500 pieces of clothing in season one. God. The main character, Daphne, had 104 different costumes in those eight episodes. Oh, my God. Um, and because it's a period oh piece, there's no modern world. It's almost like... A lot of CGI that they have to do, like a sci-fi movie, almost. Yes, um, yes. So a just lot of, crazy. a lot of their oh, a lot of their wide establishing shots of the city, and there you can that's where they mm-hmm. spend a lot of their money trying to convince you of the time period. And then the third thing that people gravitate to that's different that they've really mixed it up with is, like I said, the diverse cast as it relates to Regency England. But I'm going to save that to the end mm-hmm. of the episode. And where that fits in, and how they did all of that. Um, so let's let's kind of talk about what's the hype on Regency England in the first place. These romance Everybody novels. It. That, it's the most that, romantic setting. <laughs> right. But why? <laughs> so Regency. What in the world is it? It's named for George, the Prince Regent, George the Fourth. What does Regent mean? It's a temporary ruler in the case of a monarch not being able to rule either because they're absent, because they're insane, because um, they're too young, because they're five years old and they're not ready right. for it. So you need a you need a regent. So this Our was king about- is a toddler. So <laughs> we're in the so, interim. Welcome. There you go. So George IV <laughs> was a temporary ruler for nine years from 1811 to 1820 when Mad King George III was ill. And that's there's a movie about him. I think Mad it won king an Oscar George. or something. Um, so officially, the full time span is from 1795 to 1837, because 1837 mm, okay. is when Queen Victoria took the throne. So it starts with George III and then ends after George IV's son finished off. So it's probably easier to talk about it as it relates to the Victorian era, which maybe we're more familiar with, which had the Industrial right. Revolution, scientific advancement social change because people are moving to cities. So this is the, what happened right before that. Okay. And it's very country-based, not so much city because people haven't moved to that. It's the beginnings of more of that social change because the American Revolution just happened, the French Revolution as well, and you've got this king taking over for another king that's kind of crazy. So this prince regent, he liked to spend a lot of money, elegance in the fine arts and architecture, very focused on the upper class flourishing, which is why it's so 
romantic. Mm, and this yeah. is what, if you wanted to pin something to it, it's Jane Austen's time. Like, if you don't know anything else, it's like, oh, what is Regency? Jane Austen, her stuff. Nah. Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice was published in 1813. And speaking to what happens after the Victorian era, Charles Dickens was born the year before. So oh, wow. he's growing up in this and then going oh, into yes. Yes, the Victorian yes, yes. era for some context. But what's so interesting is Jane Austen wrote, like this is, ki it's kind of like celebrities, Hollywood, I feel like, where like that was not mo how most people lived and what most people were involved in. Right, But that's right, what right. the novels were of the time. When the girls are introduced, they're coming down the staircase in their mansion uh, and they're wearing very frilly outfits. And I had this moment of trying to recontextualize what I was seeing into a, you know, like a swank billion dollar uh, mansion in the Hollywood Hills with right. three, you know, three d teenage daughters coming down the stairs wearing, you know, like L.A. chrome <laughs> jackets and like, you know, yeah. and I was like, I was like trying to put replace it all in there. It's like, is this mm -hmm. what this is trying to say? Is this, you know, this is that glass and this is why they wear things that, you know, like a lightning bolt or something, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I was trying to put that, I was trying to, you know, uh, do some replacement therapy in my mind and be like, is it, is it, is it specifically commenting on like they wear these ridiculous things just like, you know, rich kids in L.A. wear ridiculous things, that kind of thing. That was just a funny yeah. thing that, that occurred to me as the characters were being introduced. Well, and I, I so I, I was puzzled by this as well. So I looked into it and I skimmed through this great book, which I'll post a link to if you if you are interested in this time and society. There's a book that came out in 2013 called Jane Austen's England. Because like I said, it's weird that her lens was on the issues of money and class and romance, but that was such a small part of English society. So what this book right. shows is like, well, where she actually lived. Like it's a deep dive into England at the time for Very most cool. people. So it's the way war affected them. Because like you said, it's like, God, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, Napoleon. If you remember in Jane Austen's thing, it's like Wickham is going to be this person in the army, but it's like such a small part. But like most people's lives at the time were heavily influenced by war, but that right. doesn't really come up at all in these types of stories. So just that social unrest, the minutia of their how they dress, their leisure, the family structures, taxes, like it's pretty in depth, but I thought it was just super interesting. There'll be a link to that in the show notes if you're if you want to dive into what the time was like for yeah. how the other how the other ninety five percent lived yeah. actually. So that kind of leads us to there's Regency. What makes a romance, though, as a as a story? And why hasn't mm -hmm. this type of thing been adapted? Straight from the source, the Romance Writers of America group defined mm -hmm. it as they banded a central... together. <laughs> Got to stick together. They yeah. had uh, described it as a central love story and an emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending. Mm -hmm. That's what qualifies it. So some say that would start in second century Greece, or there was a book called Pamela that came out in 1740, which we did mention in our Kissing Booth episode. Yeah, Because it also had the yes. first fan fiction with Shamala. Shamala. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sherlock. <laughs> Herlock Sholmes, yeah. Herlock Sholmes. <laughs> it's everywhere. But some people might also say it started with Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice in 1813. Mm. 
either way, there's been revitalizations and adding to the genre. So Gone with the Wind in 36 really beefed up the historical romance element of it. Ooh, yes, yes. Because of the Civil War time. And then Rebecca Still in 30. Still our zeitgeist. <laughs> mm-hmm, for sure. Rebecca in 38 was the gothic romance subgenre that got reintroduced. We talked about it. We didn't talk about Rebecca specifically. They actually made a movie of it this past year. Oh, really? But, uh, but Bly Manor was more the gothic yes. horror romance merging. But kind of what we know as now, 1972, there was a book called The Flame and the Flower, which was, I don't know how I feel about this, how it, what it's called, but it's the bodice ripper is what they call oh. these types of stories. Because up to this point, very little was sexually explicit. But this type of thing is historical fiction. There's an independent woman who attracts this alpha male to seduce and dominate her. And that's kind of where we get the steamy, scandalous novels of today is from this story that started it all. These ones, though, were notorious for abuse as a part of the love story, which the impact Mm -hmm. of that is still felt in the genre. And even in Bridgerton and later episodes, it becomes the education of Daphne and her sexual understanding. Wow. Um, So that has also been part of the scandal of of the sexual content with this. So alongside well, with this, you know, that, that doesn't far cry from when we're still we're you know, we're we're only becoming so sober to these realities. Right. Now, uh, it's no mistake that something like Bridgerton shows up to recontextualize it all hundreds of years ago to show how actually far we've come and how crazy things were and how crazy things still might be a little bit. Well, also, I think what the not to spoil anything, but the scandal cut for this show sort of reverses the roles, which then people draw into question even more, but it's presenting a, a, a totally different take on it, which that was the whole thing was like, let's yeah. bring up a conversation about consent and who does it apply yes. to and what does that mean? So alongside these steamy scandalous novels is the Harlequin romance, which is a company, but I think of it as a whole genre, started going into retail stores in 71. The, their whole marketing thing was put it where the women are. So they put it in supermarkets, retail stores, those shelves, you know, six a month they come up with. And that's sort of up to today, what is still the most popular version of this. Right. So Julia Quinn, how did she get so big? I read in one article, she was dubbed the contemporary Jane Austen, whether or what? not you think that in this genre is up for debate. But she is huge. The, the, the Bridgerton books came out in the early 2000s. But three of the books from the series are back on the New York Times bestsellers list, oh, which wow. two decades after. So she's, she's coming back again. She oh, never Lord. stopped, really. Um, when did the first one come out? The first of the Bridgerton books came out in January of 2000, but she had been writing since wow. 95. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. So she uh, and this sort of reminded me of Michael Crichton in a way, if you hear Mm. the parallels. She went to medical school after getting an art history degree because she was like, I got to do something. Actually, that's a job. I don't know what to do with this. So two years it would take, though, to get even the right classes. She didn't have any science class. Like she didn't even have the right classes to apply. So she was like, "Okay, well, this is going to still take much longer than I thought. So she wrote two romance books in that time on the side. And then there was a bidding war for those books before she even decided on what school she was going to go to. So that's 95. Wow. And she is 25 years old at the time. That's when her first books got sold. So she wrote a third novel, putting off school for a year. If you're interested in Michael Crichton, go back and listen to our episode on Michael Crichton. <laughs> and Westworld. Yeah. In Westworld. It definitely does sound Follows a similar, similar thing. Yeah. Um, and then she ended up writing a fourth one. 
after that and then decided, well, I should actually go to medical school. So she went for only a few months and then just withdrew and never came back and has been writing wow. ever since. And she has a total of 39 books now, 18 of which have been consecutive Ooh. New York Times bestsellers. Ooh. Translated into 37 languages. Just, yeah. yeah. If, if we're, we're stupid because we don't know anything about romance novels, but surely we're beating a dead horse here if you, yeah. you, you would know her if you were into this at all. Um, you know, if you've, been, if you've known who this lady <laughs> is for 20 years... This show, th- today's episode, maybe aren't isn't for you. It's for everybody else that's never that is only learning of her now, and just like us. And that's why we're here. That's why we do this. This is exactly yeah. why we do this because we are. We need to be better, and this is how we get better. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the first book of the Bridgerton series, like I said, was her ninth book that actually came out. It's called The Duke and I, and. How the series works, which is genius for this show, is season one is book one called The Duke and I, and each book follows one of the Bridgerton children. So season two is following the eldest son, Anthony, and that is what they have confirmed for season two of the show. And then book three is kind of interesting because it also plays with the different tropes of romance stories. So he said like the first one is kind of like the fake date and then they actually fall in love. Book mm-hmm, three is mm-hmm. about a class difference, kind of like a Cinderella story, this girl who is one of the the servants. So yes, it kind of all, and then the fourth one culminates and I won't spoil anything for the show, but it, the fourth one, the fourth novel is where you find out who Lady Whistledown is, the one the promoting the gossip and everything. But that happens at the end of season one in the show. So Very cool. it seems like, well, they're going to, they're right on track to have, and it's so deep and involved with how the family works and the characters and how they intertwine that they probably could do if it, if it holds together a season per a season each of the kids. Yeah. yeah. No, that yeah. sounds, that sounds like that could be really fascinating, especially they set up so many uh, really distinct characters just in the mm-hmm. first episode. And just off of what you're saying, I could see, I could see a whole, I could see a whole season about, the, about the brother. I mean, much of this focuses on the relationship between the mother, the daughter and the brother. He's the oldest brother who takes yeah. none of the responsibility, who's now coming home and trying to tell the daughter who to marry. She is trying to navigate a very different world than he's ever known, will ever know. Uh, and this is him for the first time trying to understand that women uh, have it different (laughs) while the mom is in between them trying to mitigate it's like well yes and no and not so fast and maybe this i i i really related to it a lot i i i had like flashbacks to like my brother arguing with my mother about me going to art school or just coming into la after i graduated graduated high school i swear to god it felt felt very similar to that and it really put me in the shoes of the daphne character in a different way to understand these people who do care for you, wanting different things for you, uh, and trying to yeah. navigate and take what's good about it and leave what's bad about it. I thought it to be very, very, very relatable. And that for, depth, a, for a man. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And that depth of it carries over into the books, which is why it's ripe pickings for material, because Julia Quinn was saying the characters are true to who they were and the backstory is absolutely true. This, I mean, there's differences for sure in the show, but those elements of the characters are exactly why people gravitated to the books in the first place because it has all of that and and then i even even touched on like you you mentioned the cinderella story with the maid of the other family an Mm -hmm. incredible story that they've just hinted at in the you know like 
I can mm-hmm. see a whole season about her story. <laughs> I can see a whole season about the older brother who's gone off and lived his own life with no responsibility. Yeah. You know, it, it all makes it, it, it seems one to one really great, uh, really, really primed for this adaptation. Mm-hmm. The one big thing that they have changed in the show versus the book is the race of the characters, which is given See, a lot of praise. I wasn't, I wasn't is, sure, and because I'm not familiar with the historical elements of that, and I just you know, basically because we did Lupin a couple weeks ago, and we had mm-hmm. to kind of cover that there. This is another area where I wasn't sure if the race, what the race element, when the casting was really saying, if that was trying to say something about the subject matter, or if it was a just a progressive stance on what uh, a show like this can be. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure yeah. which, which so it's direction. A, it was. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So yeah. um, it, the book isn't like this at all. They're all classic Regency white English, gotcha. you know. But the um, character that's added, one of them, to the show is Queen Charlotte, which is tying in sort of the historical stuff with Ooh. the fantasy mixture of, you know, not all the costume, like some people are like, oh, well, the clothes weren't that bright. They wouldn't have had all those dyes. And it's like, well, that's part of the fantasy stuff too. You know, like this is one family that, that that, uh, the style of it is so (laughs) pronounced, the colors are so pronounced and becomes kind of a joke um, that, and so I see exactly what you're saying there that that that's quite accurate, but it was, is there to make a point. Right. Queen, Queen Charlotte is a real person and she ruled England alongside King George the third, the, 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 the mad one. The mad. <laughs> and the big thing in the show is that she is black. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the historical side of that, they added her into the story for the show. But there is historical speculation that Queen Charlotte probably also had African ancestry. Um, wow. Which in the show, they kind of change the history so that that changes the racial makeup of who could be in the elite status in England because she grants titles and land to people of color. Yes. But yes. in real life, that she uh, was directly descended because she was born in Germany, but she was an immigrant into England. But she was from the Margarita de Castro y Sousa, which was a black branch of the Portuguese royal house. Okay, okay. So it was discovered after her death. So by art historians, ironically, that's how Julia Quinn started out. Um, But uh, they found (laughs) the paintings of this one guy, Sir Alan Ramsey, and he did not hide her more African features. And so there's all this speculation about, okay, well, he had, you know, some influence in representing these, these nobility it would have made sense that they would have diminished this aspect of it in these other paintings and in these other representations Absolutely. of 100%. her. This is fascinating. So twofold for this character because it's it's both playing on yes, it's a progressive thing. We these are this is what we can do with casting, but then it's also it is directly commenting on the historical data available that perhaps not only did she have probably African descent, but that she may have had African features as well that mm-hmm. were whitewashed, literally whitewashed from any representation of her. Yeah. Uh, so that I'll- is fascinating. And it makes me want to look back at the casting because I was looking at her in the, in the show and, and the casting for it, I think, is so beautiful. And the, I think the makeup goes with it, with it, too, because when you're talking about the African features being hidden in these paintings, you can see in the casting what they brought to it is you're you're back and forth a little bit when you first see her. You're, is she white? Is she black? And then you realize when they when they get closer, wow, oh, wow, she is black. 
So it, it, it's a whole it's a whole moment that I think that and that's why we love doing this show is that it's not just a coincidence. It's not just thrown in there as just a oh, wow, is not that or aren't we so progressive? Look at what we could. It's well, it's all of it. It's actually yeah. incredibly on point. It is calculated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty astounded by how deep just even that decision is. Which then informs the rest of the characters and and how their version of this world works and how their version of Regency England plays out. Now it's starting to make much more sense to me about what the f- when when you kept saying and the and the filmmakers are saying fantasy and we, we don't want to be quite down and I I'm that that's really starting to paint the picture of what what they mean uh, mm-hmm. a, a way to to really open up history and view it through a different lens here and and open yourself up to different possibilities well was queen charlotte uh, you know did she have some african features yeah yeah fascinating was she mixed race yeah also on that note again similar to the well what was england like at that time i found another book which i also skimmed which i'll post a link to along with the link to the painting and paintings that they show of from this guy, Sir Alan Ramsey. But there's a book that just came out in 2020 called Mad and Bad, Real Heroines of the Regency. And it's a sort of compendium. It's almost like a a deck of cards where each card is a different history of some sort of underrepresented or there isn't much history to it. But here's what we do know about women in the Regency period that were either LGBT, Jewish, women of color, women in professions like astronomy that you wouldn't know about that were actually doing important things, notable mm-hmm. things, notable people in this time that have been lost. So that, that book is called Mad and Bad, and I'll post a link to that as well if that, this kind of thing interests you for this time period. Rounding out, explaining why this is hard to adapt or if it wasn't, what were the stigmas or changes to it? Like we talked about with the romance genre, the, the format issues being the emotional lives might not translate to the screen. They, mm-hmm. I know they had mm-hmm. trouble with that with Outlander. The, the showrunner was saying, like, we can't film a thought. It's hard right. to play with that. And then similarly, in writing of the romance genre, it's the satisfaction of the sexy details that you imagine because it's only the words and you have the rest of your mind to conjure right. it. And then the happy ending stuff might be hard to carry over season to season because that's a necessity right. for right. the romance genre. But all of that aside, the the bigger thing that people discuss in terms of the Regency romance adaptation world is the topical issues. So like it's been argued, oh, well, it's sentimental, it's trivial, it's unchallenging. But that's also true of the airport thrillers and the sword and sorcery stuff. The bigger right. thing probably, <laughs> like we talked about, is the women-centric side of people think maybe it could not be treated with the same scrutiny. Yeah. Or, or the traits that are in it are just not as celebrated, like emotion and compassion and what, you know, the love story is. Right. Because, um, like, yeah. Julia Quinn, she said she never thought this would ever be. I mean, she's, like, the best in this space. And she's like, they'll make the 48th Pride and Prejudice again. Right. Because people right, know right. it and it has high esteem. But that's what's so fascinating is, like we said, this is a huge market, huge audience. The potential for eight seasons, it's like, will Bridgerton be the next Game of Thrones where, where instead of wars, there's marriage. <laughs> yeah, where it's about love and not dragon, like the craziness of that genre. There's a different craziness of this genre, which is relationships. Yeah, and sex. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing. To, it's nothing to scoff at at all. It just as a last little button, being like, "Look, this is this is big. Let's recognize it." Um, right. Stacey Abrams from your great state of Georgia. No. Um, she, what did she do? No. <laughs> How is she involved? Oh, no. 
She had a career before politics in writing romance novels. Oh, no. <laughs> no she way. Doesn't, she doesn't hide it. She says, I am proud of what I've accomplished. Interestingly, also, like Michael Crichton and Julia Quinn, her first book uh, was out during her third year at Yale. Wow. You know, she wrote under a pen name, so I'll post a link if you want to read all eight of the Selena Montgomery novels, a.k.a. Stacey Abrams. Oh, my God. Romance novels, you can. How incredible. <laughs> I knew you would like I'm that. blown away. I love this. I, I didn't know I could love her more. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So it's <laughs> I want to go there. like see her talk about this now. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's out there. The it's romance beautiful. genre is big. It's not going away. It's the most watched thing on Netflix. It is here to stay. God, man. How cool. All righty. Yeah. Thank you so much, Taylor. Thank yeah, you guys thank you. for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Please get in contact with us at illiterate pod on instagram let us know what you're watching let us know what you're reading let us know what you'd like us to do an episode on you never know get in touch with us please <laughs> all right thank you all for listening and we will catch you next week yeah.